All right, folks, back here with uh, Senator, former Senator Johnny Ellis. How you doing? I'm great, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. This has been one of the um, more requested podcasts. People have said, you got to get Johnny Ellis. That's good to hear. I'm gone, but not forgotten. Um, I think we had met, where did I meet you at? Steam Dot, or you were at the burger place. and I think so, I yes. I came up to you and I said, we got to do a podcast. And then you had, you had said, well, I, someone told you, it was, it was, they, they gave me the green light, right? Or they give you, they said I was okay. That's right. And I, my first impression was uh, Jeff Landfield. It could be a minefield. It could blow up in my face, but here I am and happy to talk. Do you, do you remember, um, I don't know if you remember this, 2012 when I ran for the Senate, um, I had gone to Fairbanks and there was this oil tax, uh, I don't know, some, some event up there. And I kind of got into it with Joe Thomas. And I didn't know him at all. And then he had kind of sent me a letter and said, hey, you know, sorry about that. about that." And he had invited me to this fundraiser. It was at Sheffield's house. Okay. And it was a Democratic fundraiser. And I was running as a Republican. I was kind of hooked up with the kind of the right-wingers back then. And um, I went to it, and people were kind of confused what I was doing there. And I had the invitation. And, and Well, that's right. Governor Sheffield, that was the Senate Democratic Campaign Committee. Right. It was a meeting of former state senators, like a reunion-type deal. I was the master of ceremonies. We had Governor Tony Knowles, Governor Bill Sheffield, Senator Mark Begich. Um, it was a who's who of past and current mm-hmm. uh, legislators. And there was some confusion that you were there, Jeff. <laughs> but my attitude is a true big tent that we're all Alaskans when you get down to it. And we should all be able to hang out together and share ideas. Well, I remember you, you had uh, first told me. I was talking to you, and then you were talking a little bit, and you said, oh, "You're that Jeff Landfield guy." And then, after a while, I remember you saying something. You're not a. You're not what I thought you'd be. Or you know, we were there's all the, f- the food, and it was a nice little party. But it was just really funny that um, I was there, and I well, was. Well, you're full of surprises. You have insights, and you're committed to this Alaska dream that we all share. And uh, like I said, everybody's welcome. Let's all have good ideas. I say. Welcome Democrats, independents, and Republicans who are in recovery, people who have seen the light, to understand that one party having too much power leads to bad things happening in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And that was the foundation of the bipartisan working group that Lyman Hoffman and I invented uh, with 10 Democrats and six Republicans. That bipartisanship of six years uh, brought out the best in people. We set aside some of the most extreme and divisive social issues in Alaska, like abortion and the death penalty. And we decided to concentrate on bread and butter issues. Um, The Republicans didn't, uh, the most extreme partisan ideological Republicans didn't like it, and the oil industry didn't like it. We had a world commodity price for crude of $119 a barrel. Governor Sarah Palin let, uh, let Democrats rewrite the tax code to get a fairer share for our resources, and that was ACES. Was ACES, yeah. And we saved $18 billion. I coined the phrase and the button that said uh, the bipartisan working group is on a savings spree. We were able to have healthy capital budgets to build up our infrastructure and to save $18 billion that we're living off of today. We're down to the last $2.5 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some people who want to spend us to zero 
to use that as an excuse to decimate public services in Alaska, to bust up unions, to renege on uh, retirement for retired teachers and public employees, uh, because that's what the Club for Growth and Alaskans, Americans for Prosperity and the Koch brothers really want to do. They want to spend us into the poorhouse uh, and to, I once uh, said to governors, uh, Tony Knowles and to Sean Parnell privately, that I would never be governor and I congratulated them on becoming governor. And they were pro-growth and pro-development, were all pro-oil, um, though some of us would stand up for the state interest against the interests of the oil companies. And I said, Governor Parnell, privately, uh, your job, half of what the oil industry and the lobbyists tell us is true, uh, and we're on the same page, but half of what the oil industry lobbyists tell you and tell me is self-serving BS, uh, and they will ask for the moon and the stars, and if we're dumb enough to give away our oil wealth, uh, they will laugh all the way to the bank and all the way to their shareholders back in London and in Houston. And your job, Governor Tony Knowles, and your job, Governor uh, Sean Parnell, is to figure out what's true and what's not true and to stand up for the people of Alaska as you swore to do uh, when you took your oath of office what, to they, stand up for us. What'd they say? And Sean Parnell wouldn't look me in the eye or talk to me uh, in a straightforward way ever again. Tony Knowles listened politely. They were both uh, pro-oil and pro-development. Uh, a Democrat has to be in a because this is an oil state. Right, yeah, you can't we have, be. We have can't. a false economy here, and the only economic development that, because we have a broken system, Jeff, of economic development in the state of Alaska does not pay for itself, whether it's the film industry or whether it's knowledge-based economy. None of those things uh, pay for themselves. Only oil uh, pays for itself. All other economic development requires government services of more schools and more roads, more infrastructure which are a net drain on the public treasury, not a net gain. And I would say right here that the permanent fund is $68 billion, and that's or give or take mm -hmm. a billion here or a billion there. And that is serious money. Uh, but really, my educated estimation after 40 years in Alaska politics since 1976 is that the Alaska permanent fund should be about $145 billion. And we would be living off the interest, living the Alaska dream of not having to pay taxes, but having a good quality of life and a basic level of public service and quality university and quality education for kids in Alaska and a good uh, economy. But through willful ignorance and corruption and deceit. So where, where, where's the other 80? Where would the other 80 come from? Well, we gave it away. Uh, through various iterations of oil taxes and giveaways and corruption and willful ignorance over the years. And there were several pivotal moments. One involved my political hero, the only Republican I've ever worked for and voted for, Governor Jay Hammond. He believed his commissioner of revenue, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, Tom, it will come to me, uh, he went on to become a vice president of British Petroleum uh, not BP Alaska, but it's British Petroleum. We oh, the, should always remember that. The big one. Uh, yes. Uh, he told uh, Governor Hammond that he should sign the oil tax bill because it was revenue neutral to the state of Alaska. 
Jay Hammond realized, uh, and the rest of us who paid attention realized years later, that it was a giveaway to the oil industry. Uh, separate accounting versus worldwide apportionment. There have been several showdowns over the years where the state of Alaska got the short end of the stick for our subsurface rights uh, to oil and gas. The state of Alaska is fairly unique that our Vic Fisher and the other, and Jack Coghill, may he rest in peace, uh, wrote a state constitution that gave the subsurface uh, rights to oil and gas and other minerals to the people of Alaska in common. Um, rather than to individual um, property owners. And that's why we share, and since the oil and gas on the slope was found on state land, we all got rich together. Um, we didn't get rich individually, we got uh, rich together as the state of Alaska, and thank God we did. So let's go, um, let's go back a little, little further. Um, you were elected in 86, right? Correct, to, to the... I've been a legislative staffer for two years to former Representative Don Clarkson, a Democrat from downtown Anchorage. And he clued me into a secret that he and his wife were tired of electoral politics and he wouldn't be running for re-election in 1986 and he wanted me to run in his place. It oh, was wow. a big honor. He he took two years. I, I said, Don, I, I will work for you as a leadership staffer. It's a great opportunity for me. It's an amazing thing because I'm interested in politics. My, I come from a family of do-gooders and a military family, active in scouts and little league and church. And, um, but I wanna go off to law school someday. And he said, oh, law school's overrated. I said, I don't know how to read a statute or how to write a bill. He said, I'll teach you everything you need to know. Just keep a secret for two years. Um, and at some point, he, his wife, Betty Ramage, an attorney, said, it's unfair that you've told this young Democrat, this young man, that you're not running in two years. You need to tell a qualified woman. How old were you? Uh, I was 24. And he, uh, so then he clued in Kay Brown, who was the director of oil and gas for the state of Alaska, eminently qualified. And at the time, downtown Anchorage had two uh, it was a two-member district. So Kay Brown and I were uh, in two different seats, uh, and we became political allies at a very young age. Uh, there's more to that story, but we probably don't have time for that today. Okay, I'm going to do it, do it next time. Sure. Um, so you got elected. So uh, one of the things I want to ask you was, you know, you hear stories and stuff. What was Juno like in the 80s? And, and I mean, I know there was a recession, I guess. Did that impact Juno, or was that more of insulated well the 1970s and the 1980s were pretty the go-go years you know the oil was flowing from the pipeline into state coffers uh we had lived through uh that original 1969 and i wasn't here yet my military family came here in 1975 when i was a 15 year old uh but in 1969 the original leases were sold on the North Slope and the state of Alaska got $900 million. Which at the time, um, I was read big bucks. The, the budget was $100 million. Exactly. <laughs> so it was a lot of money. And the legislature spent that money, in my reading of history and talking to some of the old timers, is that the state of Alaska spent that money on infrastructure and education, uh, some one-time uh, upgrades to the state of Alaska. But the idea with the public was that the politicians had blown uh, that state money, had blown this 
windfall to the state of Alaska and that if we ever got another windfall with a pipeline mm-hmm. someday that we would figure out a way to save some of that money from the politicians. And so that that was partially true, but that idea stuck with people so that when we got rich off of the pipeline and the oil started to flow, that we would uh, come up with a mechanism which was the permanent fund. And it was my Republican hero, Jay Hammond, and my Democratic hero, Hugh Malone from the Kenai, who had the idea to create the permanent fund, uh, to have a dividend, to buy in the public, uh, so that the public would be, the dividend recipients would be the uh, watchdogs of the permanent fund and save the principal from the politicians uh, to protect the corpus in the Constitution. Uh, And so it was a very forward-thinking construct so that the oil wealth would not just be for today and our immediate needs as a state, but would be shared across generations for future generations of Alaskans. It was an incredibly forward-thinking experiment uh, that has stood the test of time. So so you get elected, you're what, 24, 25, or 20? I was 26, 26 when I was so elected. You're... I was the youngest at the time. I was not the youngest ever. The youngest ever was a Republican from Ruby named John Sackett, Johnny Sackett, um, and Terry Gardner, a Democrat from Ketchikan, who went on to become the youngest Speaker of the House. They were both elected in different years at the age of 20. They had to wait in Juneau until their 21st birthday right, you'd be 21 to be, to a be sworn in. I was elected at age 26, and for a number of years in the House, I was the youngest, but not the youngest so, ever elected. So you were there, um, you got elected when that Cooper guy got elected, right? I don't know much about that. He seems like a, That's right. a person we know, but he's left, and he Steve was in the, Cooper. He was in the uh, House, no, right, wasn't he? He was in the House. Uh, he chaired the co-chaired the House Finance Committee. Uh, he was known as the High Plains Drifter, HPD. The Alaska Ear, Sheila Toomey, the gossip columnist mm-hmm. for the Daily News, called him the High Plains Drifter. Um, he was uh, an, a smart and interesting guy. We thought he would be a better governor because he had been a legislator. He, he beat Sheffield, right, in the pri- he beat primary? Sheffield in the uh, primary of 1986. Sheffield was elected in 1982, saying, uh, and he had sold the Sheffield hotels that he had created. You know, just like Wally Hickel came here with a few bucks in his pocket, Bill Sheffield came here as a Sears TV repairman and bought a hotel and turned it into the Sheffield hotel chain. Bill Sheffield... Well, it's, uh, it's a Westmark now, right? Is Westmark's, yes. And he sold it for $40 million, that chain. Al Parrish was his right-hand man and chief operating officer. Uh, but Bill, Bill Sheffield, I was, and you may have been at his 90th birthday party, at his house, uh, I didn't go, but I heard about. I heard about it. It was. It was, what was that? Was that, I, I've been to so many events over there that. But Wally Hippo was a, a self-made man. Came to Alaska, built a hotel chain, or built a hotel uh, after the earthquake. Showed interest and confidence and faith in Alaska and the growing economy. But Bill Sheffield, Democrat, and Wally Hickel, Republican, uh, came and made their way, made their fortunes in Alaska. But Bill Sheffield in 1982. Uh, had the wherewithal to travel to all the native villages to give away swag, uh, you know, box cutters and berry buckets and visit all the rural villages. And Bill Sheffield uh, was able to beat Tom Fink, thank goodness, 
uh, the Republican nominee. And Bill Sheffield uh, famously said, we're going to run state government like a business. I, uh, you know, that rubbed me the wrong way as a progressive uh, Democrat and Alaskan because government is not a business. You know, I thought that Governor Sheffield should apply business principles and efficiencies to state government to make it better and more efficient and more cost effective. But there should not be a profit motive in government. Mm-hmm. My experience has been, and Sheffield would, would be the exception to this, but a lot of the people who scream and, and yell about, we got to run it like a business, um, most of those people haven't run or couldn't run a business. That's what I've observed. I mean, in Sheffield's case, that's obviously different. He was very successful. But a lot of people who scream, we got to run it like a business. You know, I mean, Some of these folks can barely run a two-person office. Right, they don't know what they're talking so about. So it's, it's always been kind of funny. I've, I've always ob- observed that for a long time. But Bill Sheffield was able to win, and then he was running his administration like a business. In private sector, you can give the inside track for uh, uh, the, bidding the, and the, the, the contract you gave to the space. Yes. Fairbanks. But uh, Lenny Arsenault and the folks in Fairbanks giving them the inside track seemed perfectly normal to Governor Bill Sheffield and his chief of staff, Laurie Herman. Uh, but under state ethics laws, that is wrong. Was, wasn't a, and um, he was Shively? Almost, Shively uh... John Shively was the chief of staff. Laurie Herman was a special assistant. And they're all good and competent people. Uh, but you can't, running the state government like a private business will get you in trouble, whether it's Donald Trump with nepotism mm-hmm. or uh, Governor... Uh, Frank Murkowski and the nepotism with his daughter, Lisa Murkowski, her original appointment, um, or Bill Sheffield giving preferential treatment to a a friend, uh, that causes trouble. And the Republicans in the Senate uh, just about convicted Bill Sheffield. But former Senator uh, Joe Josephson, an attorney, defended Bill Sheffield in the state Senate and was able to prevent him from being ejected from office. So I did a podcast with Andy Josephson in June, and we were talking about this, and um, and also Tom Baggett. He had been working – he just started working in Department of Administration at that point. So yes, he was, he was Lisa Rudd, the he, Commissioner of Administration under Bill Sheffield. He was also around this, but I didn't – um, I was I was born in '84, you know. I was mm-hmm. from New Mexico, but you're just a baby, Jeff. Just a young, young. Well, I'm 30, I'll be 35 in December, which is closer to 40 than 30. Right. But um, they had told me, and I didn't realize this, but there was like New York Times, Washington Post, Washington Post, all these reporters were up here. It was a really big deal, the Sheffield thing. Correct. And and uh, I went back and found some archive articles, and uh, there were some Watergate lawyers that came up here. Yes. Um, that were big involved with Watergate, so it sounded like it was a really and that was, you were not elected yet, but you were involved, right? You were. I was around. I was, you know, in 1976, I attended Bartlett High School with lots of other military, Army and Air Force kids. That's where I first met Deborah Benito, uh, wife of Mark mm-hmm. Bennett. She was my, she was a freshman at Bartlett when I was a senior, and then she was a freshman at Claremont McKenna College when I was a senior. Uh, and I came back to Alaska in 1982 and worked in campaigns. Um, and was just politically active. In 1976, I got into uh, presidential politics, and then in 1980 in Washington, D.C., and then in my college Democrats at a very conservative school in California. But we, I started getting involved in the early 80s in Peggy Begich's campaigns, Mark Begich and Tom Begich. Tom Begich and I were housemates in an old 
uh, rental in Fairview, and I met Mark Begich, and uh, Peggy Begich ran two pres uh, uh, campaigns for state house or for U.S. House against Don Young, uh, who had lost to Nick Begich. Nick Begich was lost in the plane crash, and Nick Begich, that everyone knew was lost, still beat Don Young. Uh, in 1971, 1972. Yeah, no, no. The Democrats <laughs> did not nominate Peggy Begich, the widow. They nominated and did not nominate Chancey Croft. Uh, they nominated a shy, young, smart native guy named Emil Nadi. Uh, oh, I know, yeah. Who was cr who's still around yep. and was crushed by Don Young in that election. And Don Young uh, stayed on uh, now for 45, going on 46 he, years. He just filed last week for his 25th uh election that's right lou may she rest in peace his partner in politics passed away he has a new uh wife and a new lease on life and don young just like ted stevens uh thought they would die in office and lie in state in the capitol rotunda um and they have i've disagreed with their politics and policy for the most part uh but they've had a strong commitment to public service Do you know don pretty pretty well or not pretty well i've you know, Don Young, Ted Stevens, and Frank Murkowski and the others, uh, and now Sullivan and Lisa Murkowski, have come to make uh, uh, presentations to the Alaska legislature, and I was there for every one, usually in the front row, as the Democratic leader in the House or the Senate. Uh, Don Young has, I don't believe he has ever addressed a joint session of the Alaska legislature and answered questions. He prefers to show up in Juneau every once in a while and meet privately in the speaker's chambers or the president's office uh, with legislators one-on-one -on -one and telling stories and giving insights into congressional machinations over Alaskan issues. But for whatever reason, I suspect he doesn't want to make a speech in public and doesn't want to uh, make news or answer questions from well-informed Alaska legislators, huh. uh, some that would be friendly, some that would challenge his positions on various issues. Uh, he hasn't wanted to subject himself to that. I think that's a shortcoming of his service. I think that, you know, he has a nice house in Virginia. He has a nice retirement home in Arizona that he and his wife uh, could retire and have a nice pension and nice health benefits uh, and let a new generation of Alaskan leaders uh, take you, over. You think he does? See, I mean, I did a podcast with him and obviously he's not afraid to speak his mind. I wonder I wonder if that's why he has never done the joint session because he seems like he'd just say anything. He doesn't hold back much. And He doesn't hold back. Maybe he's been advised by his staffers who cringe and are afraid of what he will say in public and having to clean up the mess. <laughs> we did a podcast and he told me, uh, I asked about Watergate and this is last year and you know, the similarities to at the time, the Mueller, Mueller investigation. And he tells me on the podcast, I mean, he goes, well, you know, if, if he were to listen to me, I told him, Mr. President burned the tapes and he would have been fine. And he told me that. On the <laughs> oh, sure. So he yeah. just says stuff and he can seem to be get a, get, get away with, I mean, he said, he said a lot of stuff over the years and right. I think people really, for you know, right or wrong, good or bad, they just like him. I mean, they just they feel an association with him. Yes, or some majority of Alaskan voters have felt a connection uh, to him and his style over the years. Um, I just think it's time for a new generation of leadership, someone who can start building up 
seniority because seniority of our U.S. senators, um, I, I thought that we were perfectly positioned to have uh, Mark Begich, Democrat in the U.S. Senate, and Lisa Murkowski, Republican in the U.S. Senate. So no matter who was in the White House or control of the House and Senate, Alaska's, Alaskans would be well positioned mm -hmm. to protect and promote our interests. Uh, but the Republican Party doesn't see it that way. Um, I believe sharing power and locking arms together, in spite of our ideological difference, puts the best foot forward uh, in defense of Alaskan values and Alaskan goals. Uh, the Republican Party doesn't see it that way. Uh, but I've been proven right over four decades of Alaska politics that when one political party covets and connives to have all of the political power that they go too far. They abuse that power uh, and bad things happen to the state of Alaska. When we have power sharing and bipartisanship, like the six years of the bipartisan working group, uh, good things happen for Alaska. I, uh, my friends were bamboozled when I went to Lida Green and said, Lida Green, we have fought like cats and dogs for years. Let's put aside our differences. Let's lock arms for the state of Alaska, the best interest, uh, and I can bring 10 Democratic votes and make you Senate president. And she was Senate president for two years. Uh, and then we made Gary Stevens Senate president for four years. Lida Green is Tuckerman Babcock's mother-in-law, right? Correct. <laughs> yes. And I... The, the irony. I did work with Tuckerman Babcock. Uh, with did you? With the Rail Belt Energy Fund to help uh, <laughs> put the power cord between Fire Island Wind Farm uh, for uh, uh, to get uh, wind power over to the mainland. Uh, there are different schools of thought to know if wind power uh, makes sense in South Central Alaska. It makes a lot of sense for Kodiak. Uh, but after Lida Green was Senate president for two years and Portia Babcock was her chief of staff, Tuckerman Babcock's sister, you know, uh, Tuckerman and Portia Babcock went to Stellar Alternative High School with Mark Begich and Tom Begich. Yeah, there's a story where, I think it might have been an Arctic Entry story, but I think Tom Begich and Mark and, no, it was Tom, Tom Begich, I think Tuckerman, and somebody else was, was in, I think it was Bolivia during like a coup. Yes. They were, they were on like a trip, a high school trip, and there was a coup in the government, and they had to, you know, kind of get out. Um, but it's just funny that, you know, you don't, you don't think of Tuckerman Babcock hanging out with Tom Begich or Mark Begich, but they used to. There was somebody else too back then. They've in, all known in each high school. other for years. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Someone told me Alaska politics. Someone told me Tuckerman used to wear like in school that who was telling me that he wore like a coattail and like a top hat and well yes really he wore ridiculous a, a cape and a top hat. His uh, why would he wear a cape? His civics teacher Sharon Clausen works out with me at the senior center, and she has told stories about uh, Tuckerman. Uh, and, you know, he would admit to these things, I'm, I'm sure, in public. We've all grown up in Alaska politics, and we've all evolved uh, over the years. But Tuckerman was very much a monarchist. He just thought there should be an enlightened king. And I don't <laughs> believe he wore a crown, but he did wear a cape uh, around Stellar. Uh, Mark Begich was off being a businessman and an entrepreneur and starting the first non-alcoholic team nightclub. Uh, called the Motherlode in Anchorage, where the uh, Sullivan Arena is located. The Motherlode. The Motherlode. Yes, it was the disco era. A weird name. Mark Begich uh, was a sharp dresser and a good dancer, and had a record collection. 
and serve fruity blender drinks with umbrellas in them at the bar. It was a non-alcoholic teen nightclub, uh, and it was a sensation among kids in the Anchorage area. Mark Begich uh, was a, a young teenager and sold luggage uh, for an older lady who had a luggage store down on 4th Avenue. And one day, Mark Begich was on the sales floor, and in walked George Sullivan. The Democrats think of George Sullivan uh, as the best Mayor Sullivan, uh, though he vetoed the first equal rights for gay and lesbian uh, residents of That's Mayor of Dan's, Alaska. That's Mayor Dan's dad, right? Mayor Dan's dad, yeah. very likable old guy, uh, Irish guy, um, Mayor George Sullivan. He was uh, did a number of terms as mayor of Anchorage. Well, he walked into the luggage store, and this young clerk, Mark Begich, teenager, said, Mayor Sullivan, it's so nice to meet you. My name is Mark Begich. And uh, Mayor Sullivan said, oh, Mark, I knew your dad, the congressman. And, and Mark Begich said, thank you very much for remembering my dad. There is nothing for you. I have a complaint. And George Sullivan said, what is that, young man? And he said, there's nothing for young people to do in this town. We need more activities, healthy activities for young people. And this is before he started the non-alcoholic teen nightclub. And George Sullivan said, I've been thinking of creating a youth commission, the first youth commission. And you sound like a, a, an ambitious young man with lots of ideas, and I'm going to appoint you. So we have often pointed out that it was Mayor George Sullivan, father of Dan Sullivan, who gave Mark Begich his start oh, in Anchorage and Alaska politics. Oh, shit. I did not know that. That's and uh, But that was old-time Alaska politics. Uh, we should all be able to uh, celebrate that now, though we've had our differences uh, in later years. So, so tell, tell me about, uh, really want to know about a little bit about Juno in the 80s, because I hear the stories and even the 90s. I mean, now it's so much different. Um, people have been around... You hear a lot of stories. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like being down there as a young man in the 80s? And Well, it was a hard-drinking group of people. You know, the bar culture uh, of the the Viking and the Rendezvous Club and uh, a number of bars there. Was Triangle there back then? The Triangle, yes. That was uh, a famous uh, get-together place. I never participated in that. I'm a non-drinker. Uh, really? You don't drink at all? No, just raised as a Baptist teetotaler and don't like the taste. And I have no, ju I'm not judgmental mm -hmm. uh, about that at all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a progressive person who just thinks all things in moderation and live your life to the fullest and be your authentic self and have a good time. Um, and I'm completely down with that. But the bar culture in Juneau, the bar circuit, was very lively at the time. The uh, cocaine was uh, very much in vogue in the 1970s so, and 1980s. That's what I want. I've heard all these people talk about the stories of people doing co cocaine or coke off of the uh, finance table. Well, I never witnessed that, but there, cocaine, uh, a lot of the Democrats, uh, Democratic legislators, uh, there were the ad hoc Democrats and the Sunshine Boys. After What's sun, uh, what Sunshine Boy? Well, the Sunshine Boys, you know, were in the early 70s. They were the young Democrats called the ad hoc Democrats who took over the Democratic Party. Uh, they were people like Representative Joe McKinnon, Representative Bill Parker, um, Representative Brian Rogers, Representative Don Clarkson. They all were college kids who protested the Vietnam War and smoked pot 
free love, make love, not war. They were college kids who grew up protesting Richard Nixon and the uh, Vietnam War and the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which Ernest Greening uh, from Alaska uh, was one of the few to vote against. Good for Ernest Greening. And they were elected in 1974 and 1976 to the Alaska legislature. It's when the Democrats had 40, 38 to 42 members of the House of Representatives. They were wow. called the Sunshine Boys, though they included Representative Sally Smith from Fairbanks, who went on to be the mayor of Juneau, went on to date George Bush during his lost cocaine summer in Fairbanks when he was Wait, what? Wait, what? George Bush was sent by his family to Fairbanks to work for Western Airlines, Neil Burke, when Neil Burke was running guns and cocaine for the CIA. CIA, yeah. When, when, when was this? In, in the, South in the, America. Was in that, the 70s or 80s? That was, had to be in the 1980s. And he dated, went on a couple of dates with Sally Smith, this young woman in Fairbanks. What? Who was not yet elected to the, um, to the State House of Representatives. Then she was in Juneau during the 1981 for the coup when the Republicans took over. Yeah. I'll have to tell you about that some other time. That's a long, complicated story, uh, the coup, but it's a fascinating. That was the uh, Tom, um, no, Tom, what's his, uh, who was the speaker? Well, oh my gosh, the Democrats were fighting. It was Jim Duncan, Juneau Democrat versus Sam Cotton, Eagle River Democrat, and the House was unorganized. And so the oil industry and the oil lobbyists said to Representative Ramona Barnes, Republican, and Representative Joe Hayes, Joe Hayes, that's the white uh, Republican Joe Hayes, that Ramona Barnes should stand up. Well, first of all, what they did in 1981, they said the Democrats are out to lunch and can't organize. We want the Republicans to organize and get rid of the income tax and change the oil taxes to help the oil industry and give away the state's resources. So we think you, Ramona Barnes, should stand up and nominate uh, Joe Hayes as speaker. And uh, so when the Democrats were out to lunch and arguing about who should be speaker, Cotton or Duncan, uh, the Republicans put keys in the in the doors to the chamber and broke them off so no one could open the doors of the chamber. They had pages Damn. get up in the galleries to hold the doors closed of the galleries. Sally, Representative Sally Smith from Fairbanks, the woman who had dated George Bush during the last cocaine summer, <laughs> um, pushed her way through a page and jumped over the gallery wall. And Fred, uh, Fred Brown, Representative Fair Brown from Fairbanks, uh, pushed through a page and jumped over the, the gallery and went and said, we protest. Is he the guy that's still around? Is it Ann Brown? No, is he's, different? he's passed away. Okay, uh, okay. Fred Brown. Sally Smith is still alive and kicking. And um, so they went to their seats and protested. Most of the Democrats were out to lunch and didn't know what was going on. Ramona Barnes, uh, the person sitting in the chair, was uh, Russ Meekins Jr. Russ Meekins Sr. had been a Democratic uh, representative uh, during the 1960s, but Russ Meekins Jr., um, and he's uh, the brother of Susan Sullivan, who's still around in Alaska and was uh, in local government, Anyway, Russ Meekins Jr. was setting up uh, as the speaker pro tem. Uh, the Republicans had promised him that if he would betray the Democrats, be the Judas Iscariot uh, against the Democrats, that they would make him the chair or co-chair of finance. 
And so he got up there and, and pulled the coup session together. Ramona Barnes nominated uh, Joe Hayes from Anchorage, and they elected Joe Hayes uh, as Senate president. There was not, I don't know that there was a quorum on the floor, but there were enough Republicans that they declared Joe Hayes. Was it Hayes, Senate president or was it House Speaker? House Speaker, yeah. excuse me. So Joe Hayes was Senate president. Ramona Barnes was the majority leader. And then uh, Russ Meekins, the Democrat, who was the Judas, is carried, uh, so to speak, uh, said, okay, I'm ready to be co-chair of finance. And they said, no, you betrayed the Democrats, so we don't trust you either. We're not going to make you... Oh, shit. Uh, chair of the House Finance Committee, we have a secret deal with Representative uh, Al Adams, who is going to chair the uh, House Finance Committee and brings along two or three or four other Bush Democrat votes uh, to betray the urban Democrat. That's how uh, Al Adams, who was quite the scamp, um, and I always cut slack for Lyman Hoffman, I cut slack for Frank Ferguson, I cut slack for uh, Al Adams, may he rest in peace, and Frank Ferguson as well, because they were uh, Democrats from the Bush, because you have to be a Democrat to be elected from the Bush. And Except are, uh, John Binkley. Uh, except Binkley. You have to, um, those people all got into positions. They played Democrats off against Republicans and Republicans off against Democrats to get into leadership positions, no matter who, which party was in power or which governor was in power. In, in order to protect the bush, to get infrastructure, to get power cost equalization, to protect rural schools, uh, they would always uh, do what was right for the bush. I was an urban Democrat who always looked out for the bush uh, because I think that's the heart of Alaska, that's the right thing to do. Uh, all the power and wealth should not be concentrated in one single urban area, that we're all Alaskans and we're all in this together. And if Village Alaska dies and is unhealthy, uh, which it's certainly had its ups and downs with alcoholism and, and public safety, uh, that the heart of Alaska uh, would die and be lesser. Uh, and so I've always uh, helped uh, enable uh, the rural Democrats right. uh, for money and position. I did a podcast with uh, f former Speaker John Harris uh, after the election. I think it was November, December time. And... Um, it was when the Republicans had kind of spiked the football after the election and said they had a majority and yes. it was a big mess. And he had said, um, made an observation. He said, do you notice how there's no rural people in that group? And I said, yeah, that's true. And he says, you know, you have to have that. He goes, it's, if you don't, if you just ignore a whole section of the state, um, and he was talking about when he was speaker, there was many rural Democrats in his, um, his group. And he was really good. He was very close with, uh, I think it was Richard Foster. Yes. To the point where he said... Sometimes he would tell him, it's okay, you don't have to vote this way, you know, it's bad for you, don't worry about, worry about it. Right. But he said they were always very close, and he understood the needs of, of and he was, even from being from Valdez, I mean, he represented parts of, you know, Alaska that weren't urban, like a city. Yes, rural district. areas. Yes, if the, if the bush is shut out, it's an unstable organization. Uh, and true leaders in the state, and I think I played this role in the bipartisan working group, uh, when you share power between political parties and you put the emphasis on bread and butter Alaska first issues rather than extreme ideological positions, and when you share power among regions, I've often said, Jeff, that the most 
divisive political issues are not between Republicans and Democrats, between political parties, though those are important and heartfelt and divisive. They can be unless they're moderated by people with a, a broader vision and deeper understanding of Alaska. But some of the most difficult issues and divisive issues have been regional in nature. And unless all regions or most regions are represented in a leadership organization in either the House or Senate, they are destined to be divisive and hurtful and to fall apart. Mm -hmm. uh, because power sharing in Alaska, uh, you know, we have this unique situation where we have these God-given resources and a unique forward-thinking constitution at the state level. Uh, we are so lucky as Alaskans to be born uh, in Alaska or to migrate to Alaska and to share in this great experiment with, with great wealth. And if we handle it right and are good stewards uh, and servants of the public interest and of the people, we've got a good thing going. But one outside interest like the Koch brothers or Alaskans for Prosperity, the AstroTurf groups and the billionaires and the oligarchs, uh, get their fingers into Alaska like they did with electing uh, Mike Dunleavy, that extremism uh, can have very dark and pernicious uh, outcomes for the state of Alaska. So, so you had, speaking of Governor Dunleavy, you had served with him in the Senate for, I guess, five, he was in the, there five years. You were there most of that, right? You. I did. So I've seen uh, Mike Dunleavy in public and in private. Uh, his positions were so extreme that other conservative Republicans would not sign on. There was a was, the vouchers was one of the big... He was very frustrated. Um, you know, with the, with the vouchers, he sincerely committed to uh, state support for not just private and religious school vouchers, but for vouchers for for-profit, for the most pernicious kind of, uh, and it's the Friedman Foundation from, um, named after Milton Friedman mm -hmm. from the Chicago School, that believe in private for-profit education, which have been some of the worst. Mil Milton went to Chile, they had the big thing with uh, Pinochet, that was very Pinochet. controversial. The for-private uh, education, those are the ones that skim the profits out of public education and vouchers, and then close up in the middle of the night and send uneducated masses of kids back to the public schools. Uh, but Mike Dunleavy sincerely believes in uh, private and religious school vouchers. Uh, I never fell for it. Uh, John Devon um, or the um, some of the lobbyists for the private school said, Ellis, you represent um, uh, African-Americans and native kids in poor neighborhoods of Fairview and Mountain View. You should be all for the vouchers. And I said, well, the voucher is going to be $1,500. The uh, tuition at Holy Rosary Academy or at Jerry Prevost Private School is $2,500 per year. So the low-income black or native family is not going to be able to make up the difference. Um, and he said, but we'll have scholarships. And I said, well, you'll have a few scholarships, but it won't be enough. It was... Dun, uh, Mike Dunleavy, whose uh, extreme ideas would not find support among other conservative Republicans, so he got frustrated, and after 18 months 
or a couple of years, he decided to quit and run. I think it was longer. It was about five years because he was elected in 2012. After, um, yes, he left his term early. And with the support of his brother, you know, most Alaskans would not fund uh, Dunleavy's campaign. But because the vote base of the Republican Party is Wasilla and uh, the Matsu Valley, uh, it's no mistake why former Governor Sean Purnell moved his law practice to Palmer, because that is the vote base for the Republican Party. So you can be the most extreme, the most conservative, the most right wing, and have the best chance I, of winning. I kind of wonder what would have happened if, um, you know, if, let's say, for example, if Mark Begich wouldn't have gotten the race and it would have been a, a five months of, of just Walker and, and Dunley, because I think because of the walker baggage rift and, and what was going on there, you know, Dunleavy skipped a lot of debates and didn't really say much until really, really at the end when, when, when Walker got out, it started to be more, but by that point it was pretty much kind of five months, four, four and a half months had gone by. Well, Dunleavy, you know, as you remember, and Dermot Cole has done uh, the best job of investigative um journalism that we've seen, independent investigative journalism and setting the record straight, uh, he's pointed out and documented. Am I a a close second? (laughs) Yes, I would put you a close second, absolutely. And we need those independent voices uh, that are not controlled by corporate media and corporate interests. Um, So yeah, keep doing what you do, Jeff. It's it's important uh, to the body politic. But Dermot Cole and others have substantiated and documented that Mike Dunleavy basically said, um, I'm going to get you a triple dividend. The politicians ripped you off. I'm going to get you a triple dividend, which he calls a full dividend for the last three years. And and lots of low information voters were very committed to getting their triple dividend, whether we could afford it or not, and in a single year. And he basically said, oh, no, I'm not going to cut education. I'm a good guy. There, don't worry about any budget cuts. Uh, all the while conniving with with those ideological groups to, uh, you know, drown the state government in a bathtub. Well, he, he had said, too, you know, there was a comment about not, not really cutting or not changing the ferry system. And oh, yeah. That was on the record, and that, yeah. Yeah, that was not— And Begich was off being competent and not pandering and telling the truth and making sense in terms of the Alaskan economy and state services. Uh, but the public, this is a right-leaning state, and they went for the easy answer and the big payday. Uh, Dunleavy, nobody would give him money, but his wealthy brother from Texas invested in his brother. And Bob, it, Bob, Bob Penny, too, put a lot of money. And Bob Penny uh, and Ron Duncan, uh, people that don't like a progressive income tax and have wanted to see uh, an end to the dividend. Um, and so they're they're competing interest there. But I remember, Jeff, way back to being a college student and having been a, uh, a newspaper delivery boy for the Daily News and the Anchorage Times. And when the oil started flowing through the pipeline and the state of Alaska started getting rich, it didn't make sense to have, to many people, to have an income tax uh, and to have a dividend and money flowing into the state treasury. I heard about Representative Ramona Barnes and Representative Terry Martin, conservative Republicans who were there for the coup. Real quick, I heard, I heard Ramona. I've heard stories about her. Very tough, right? Yes, Rambona, we, <laughs> we call her. And Ramona and I got along because we both came from poor, low-income military backgrounds. She always kept her word to me, and I kept my word to her. 
and we did a lot of good work on public safety together. Uh, and I grew up with an honorable tradition of keeping your word and a handshake and a word are good yep. in Alaska politics and in electoral uh, politics, uh, which too many people break their word today and have evolving alliances. And it's a, that's a terrible way to try and run the state when you can't trust somebody's word. So Ramona and I would disagree on uh, important policy issues. But at the time, I was a college kid in California. And my mother would send me a package of news clips, political news clips. And I saw that the Republicans were talking about getting rid of erasing the income tax off of the books. And my parents and lots of Alaskans had paid a very modest income tax to run the state of Alaska. There were, they had skin in the game. And I wrote, I dictated a public opinion message on the dorm phone, the dorm pay phone to my mother. This is before email. We had public opinion messages, POMs. And I said the state of Alaska should keep the personal income tax on the books, reduce it to a dollar so we would still be Alaska taxpayers and have skin in the game. Uh, but otherwise, we would only become dividend recipients. And the size and scope and cost of government would inflate over the years beyond what we could afford. And we would wake up someday and be dividend recipients and have a size and scope of government that was unaffordable and too big. Um, at the age of 19, I guess I could, I, I don't claim any great prescience or, or insight into the future, uh, but it will be very difficult to ever have an income tax or a sales tax in Alaska. And I go back to my idea that the permanent fund should be $145 billion. We could live off of the earnings and not have to pay any kinds of taxes. Because I'm a progressive, but I don't believe that paying taxes makes us better people. Uh, I like the great Alaska dream of living off of our oil resources uh, and having a good quality of life. So um, I was going to ask you, you know, you've, you've been around for, what, Sheffield, Cooper, Hickel, Knowles, Murkowski, Pale, so seven or eight governors now. All of them, yes. Um, what's going on now, it seems there's a lot of fighting with the governor and the legislature. I don't I don't think they're talking anymore. There's this business of where the session's going to be, and there's just a bit of breakdown of, of communication. Is In your experience, and you've been around a long time, Is this has it, has it been worse before? Has there been situations where maybe Hickel or, you know, there was Murkowski? Are things really bad, or do they just seem bad? Have they been worse? Have they? Is this where are we at? Well, every election we say this is the most important election. Yeah, in I know, Alaska I know. I get history sick, sick of hearing We like that. to dramatize uh, the choices um, to get people to come and vote and to care, using fear and hopefulness and all of those kinds of emotions in Alaska politics. Um, but I, yeah, I have, as you point out, I have forty years in Alaska policy and Alaska electoral politics. And this probably is the most extreme that I've seen because we're down to the last two and a half billion dollars of easy liquid assets. Um, and some people have wanted us to go broke so that they could use that existential threat uh, to break unions and to renege on retirement and other things that other people have in mind that former Senator Pete Kelly from Fairbanks had in mind. but. We were able to defeat him and throw him out of the Senate 
with Representatives and now Senator Scott Kawasaki. I'm very proud of that achievement. It made a difference. It didn't change the organization in the state Senate, but it had a significant effect. But this probably is, um, this has been the dream of the most fiscally conservative anti-government forces, the oligarchs, the outside oligarchs, and the internal anti-government side. Their dream has come true. Their 40 years of dreaming has come true with Mike Dunleavy, who is so extreme uh, that other Republicans wouldn't go along with him, but his brother got him elected governor and Alaskans voted for him, a majority, uh, to do, I mean, he sold them a bill of goods, they went for it, and now he is carrying through with this dream of killing the university, killing public services, uh, so that Alaskan economy will be hurt. Um, I, for years, made the argument to Republicans that smart Republicans in Texas, uh, smart conservative Republicans, invested in the University of Texas because it's a money machine. It's a sports and money machine. It's a money maker. Where the state university in the state of Alaska could be a money machine so for keeping young people here and making money. But the ideological extreme Republicans see it as a place where it's liberal professors and liberal students, which isn't true, uh, that must be decimated. It's a very short-sighted view of education in Alaska and of the Alaskan economy. So you talk, you talk about this outsider, this money, and this, these oligarchs, and this plan. What, what do you think their end game is? I mean, if, if you, what you're saying, I mean, it seems to me that these cuts and reductions and I mean I, we have budget problems but it just seems to me that um who's winning here I mean I, I was asking we were doing a radio yesterday with Matt Buxton from the Midnight Sun and he made a good point you know with like the Trump tax cuts I mean there was clear winners people some people won won from there some people lost some people won who's winning who are the winners of these huge draconian cuts and, and well the extreme ideologues who want the government to be broke um I once said to Governor Parnell that it was a good thing if we got our fair share for our God-given oil resource, we could have a surplus and we could do voluntary pre-K and kids would do better in school and it would be wonderful. And he said to me that it, and many Republicans believe, the most ideological and extreme people, believe that government should not have a surplus. I believe it's our oil and to do with it what we will to uh, have a good quality of life in the state of Alaska. But the most extreme people now with Dunleavy being in the driver's seat believe that the government, if it has a surplus, it means we're not giving away enough of our wealth to the private sector. Uh, and that's definitely what the Koch brothers, Alaska has become their playground and their, uh, their experiment to see if they can destroy government. They can get us to zero. There can be no surplus. They can bust the unions. They can renege on retirement. Uh, the retirement's commitment are in the Alaska Constitution, but they are looking for a friendly judge uh, who can say you can't renege, but you can lessen or ameliorate the state commission or a state commitment to retirees and their retirement uh, system and health benefits. Uh, there is an ideological Republican attack on public services, and if these budget cuts go through and the vetoes stand, Alaskan economy will suffer, and we will live in a state uh, 
lots of educated and mobile people will leave the state of Alaska, our economy will suffer, and no one with a right mind who have mobility and an education will want to live and raise their families here. Alaska will be in the poorhouse and we will suffer for this ideological extremism that's in the governor's office today. Paint a pretty, pretty dark picture, huh? What it do you, is. you think it's? Uh, I kind of wonder what's going to happen next year with these elections. You know, it's kind of it's a presidential year, but it's kind of our midterms. You know, for Alaska. And it is. There was no blue wave. There was no blue trickle uh, in the last election, and that's why Scott Kawasaki beating uh, Pete Kelly was such an amazing accomplishment. Uh, in 2020, there will be a better outcome at the legislative level for progressive candidates because the Democrats gained seats uh, against w Governor Wally Hickel and against Governor uh, Frank Murkowski because they did extreme things, nothing of the magnitude that Dunleavy has done. But this is a real test uh, over these veto override votes. If Republican legislators like Lance Pruitt and others will vote to sustain uh, Dunleavy's decimation of the ferry system of the University of Alaska, if they vote to sustain the governor's extreme destructive vetoes, are they puppets? Are they rubber stamps for the Dunleavy disaster? That is the question well, going forward. Well, Pruitt's interesting because, you know, his wife is working for the governor at a, at a very generous salary. Of yes, all of the anti-government anti people from Ben Stevens to Lance Pruitt's wife and others, they often rail against government and government employees. <laughs> until they get their job. Until yeah. they get their jobs or they Which, and I've always said, I'm not opposed to people getting paid for their talents and, and doing well. And, and you hire people you know, I'm, I have no issue with that. But um, my issue is a lot of the folks they've put in these positions aren't qualified. It's, it's not, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, it's person's qualified and person somebody I know. I mean, you hire people, you know, it's part of the way this works, but... Well, conservative Republicans campaign against government, and then they get the government jobs, and they prove, uh, in many cases, to be extreme and to be incompetent, and prove their point that government uh, is poorly run. Uh, but Dave Steren and Marianne Pruitt can work together, and then they can sue each other, and then they can make nice again. I don't think they've made nice. I think... Uh... Well, the they, money I mean, is flowing, and the oil industry and the resource extraction industries can pump money and benefit the, the Pruitt family, and it's uh, apparently legal or ethical enough to get away with. And uh, Lance Pruitt is right there defending the Dunleavy administration uh, and uh, with education cuts and things that I think will be detrimental to the Pruitt children. Uh, but that's their family business, and uh, we'll see how it turns out. We only have a few, few minutes left, but last thing I want to ask you is, um, you know, I, I know you've worked with Kathy Geisel for a long time, and you, I would imagine you guys probably weren't ever allies in any way. With the ads and the targets Dunleavy's doing against Kathy Geisel and Natasha Weinemhoff and, you know, kind of certain Republicans, it seems like Geisel has really embraced and been very fair to the Democrats. Tom, she worked with Tom Begich closely. Um What's your kind of opinion or observation about where she's at now compared to in the past when, you know, she was part of the minority, when you guys were in the bipartisan group? Um, you know, what do you think about where she is now in the Senate and then also the effects of Dunleavy kind of attacking her? It's a very fascinating dynamic, just like I told you that I helped make uh, Light Green after fighting like cats and dogs and disagreeing on policy. 
uh, I helped make her Senate president, and we rose above partisanship. And I understand there is a positive working relationship behind the scenes between Senator Kathy Giesel, Senate president, and Tom, uh, my old housemate, Tom Begich, and, and sincere friend, uh, to do the business uh, of the state of Alaska. And so it is a fascinating personal dynamic uh, to watch that's to the benefit of the state. And like I said, it's never been as extreme or as destructive as it is with Dunleavy uh, as governor. It is the dream of the outside oligarchs and extreme ideological interests in Alaska to have Gov Governor Dunleavy willing to renege on everything he campaigned on um, and for Republicans and Democrats uh, who have very deep-seated and sincere policy differences to lock arms uh, against the governor's extremism because Kathy Giesel and Tom Begich know they can still uh, have their disagreements, but they know that the Dunleavy disaster is an existential threat to everything we hold dear uh, in the state of Alaska. So I'm proud of them putting their Alaskan values uh, into, uh, into working with each other to protect us from the extremism of the Dunleavy administration. We should, we should applaud that and be proud. Now, Kathy Giesel gave us the oil tax credits where we owe the oil industry a billion dollars per annum for our God-given resources. So some of her extremism and pro-industry position have gotten us into a bad shape for the state of Alaska because as Senator Bill Willikowski points out, that a solution to our, uh, our position, we could have a healthy dividend and have healthy services for the university and education if we would uh, set aside the oil tech, change the law, and not give away a billion dollars of our oil to the oil industry. They're laughing their butts off all the way back to London and Houston. Uh, our budget problems could be solved overnight or largely ameliorated if we didn't have Oh, the oil industry, the oil tax credits. So Kathy Giesel helped get us into this mess. Don't you think? I mean, but if I, Tom Begich and Kathy Giesel can lock arms against the Dunleavy disaster, I say more power to them. We'll have to continue this because that's another. I was gonna maybe real quick. We can with the credit, the credit, the kind of deductions, but the you know the credits are getting um, the per barrel. The, the issue for me, at least, is is we just change the tax system every five or ten years. We have these big changes and. That to me sends a whole different message or pro signals a problem of, you know, nobody has any knowledge of how the taxes are going to be in 10 years. And um, that creates some, I think, instability when you drill a well and you invest money and it takes seven or eight years to. So the, the I've had people tell me the, the ability is an important factor. I've had people tell me in the industry, the, the amounts are important, obviously. I mean, but but what's also important is the instability and predictability. And I don't think they would mind paying more if it was just going to be the same and you know, not change. So that's another, another, another podcast, I think another we can day. discuss, but really, Senator Ellis, I want to thank you for doing this. Um, this has been really fascinating and I think we could do a lot more of these. You have a lot of information and a lot of stories. I'm happy to get together. Okay. Senator Ellis. Well, thanks again. And we'll do it again down the road. And folks, if you um, have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast with me, let me know. And we'll talk to you next time. Landline.